Nahum chapter 3, as we finish off this book tonight. Last time, uh, two weeks ago, we had a guest speaker last week. Two weeks ago, we were in verses 1 through 7. So we're going to go verses 8 through 19 tonight. Let's start reading verse number 8. Art thou better than populous know that was situated among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubin were thy helpers. Yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou shalt also thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. All thy stronghold shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into the, into the go into clay, and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall, be, uh, it shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locusts. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and fleeth away. Thy crowned are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria, Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap, uh, shall clap their hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? What striking words for the end of this prophecy. So we're continuing our look at God's woe to the city of Nineveh. Her destruction is just, and her sins testify against her. By way of review, we saw God declare a woe in verse 1. We saw in verses 2 through 3, God telling them the severity of their judgment. In verse 4, we saw they had committed adultery. All nations are responsible under the law of God to worship the one true God alone. Uh, you say, do you want America to be Christian? I want every nation to be Christian. Because there is one God, and we are commanded to serve and love and adore that one God. I uh, say, do you believe in freedom of religion? No. If I did, I'd be in violation of the Ten Commandments. I believe there is one God who is to be worshipped. He alone is to be worshipped, and nobody else is to be worshipped. That's biblical, by the way. They may call you an extremist today, but that's biblical. If I didn't believe the one true God was to be worshipped alone, I wouldn't really believe in him, would I? What do you think of a God? And you say, well, I have my God, but you can have your God if you want to. You don't believe very strongly in your own God. It's a problem there. In Romans 1, we see that the reason for man's condemnation 
is that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. The lack of the worship of God is why man is condemned today. The lack of the worship of God. And by the way, so Romans 1 is interesting. Romans 1 is really talking about the Gentile nations. Chapter 2 is talking about the Jews. Were they better off than the Gentiles? Well, in some ways they were. They had the law of God. They had the word of God. To them was given the oracles of God. The problem the Jews had was they turned from worshiping God and began to worship the law. They began to worship the temple and the sacrifices. It was the means of God's worship that they began. So why why are Jews condemned? If Gentiles are condemned for not worshiping God, uh, Jews did worship God, why were they condemned? Because Jesus said, though their their lips were honoring him, their hearts were far from him. So in chapter 3 of Romans, he, he includes all under condemnation. Why? Because they've all gone out of the way. They've all stopped worshiping God as they ought to do. And then in verses 5 through 6, God promises to make them an example. That's Nineveh. He's going to make them an example to all nations. Um, and he does, by the way. He does. As we go through here, you'll see. We saw the first half of the chapter already. Let's start in verse number 8 tonight. He begins to... Uh, as, I, as you've seen already, God does a lot of mocking of his enemies here. That's okay. Art thou better than populous No, that was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea? Are you better than her? This verse helps us in dating the book. He refers to the fall of populous No and Thebes and, uh, as being a past event. Right? Are you better than populous No, which was situate among the rivers? So, this is after the destruction of Populus No, which took place in 664 to 663 BC. We see this God mentioned several other times. We're not going to read it, but uh, Jeremiah 46, 25, Ezekiel 30, 14 through 16, we, re- we read them on our survey of the book, mentioned this false God that existed in Egypt. He's asking Nineveh, are you better than Populus No? You think you're in better shape than she was? Speaking of this false God and the city that worshipped it. That city was more wealthy, it was more lavish, it was more well-protected than Nineveh. God says, are you stronger than populous? No. She doesn't exist anymore. Her city's been overrun and destroyed. She was stronger than you, richer than you, more beautiful than you. What's going to happen to you if I destroyed Thebes? What's going to happen to you, Nineveh? Thebes was situated among the rivers. It sat on either side of the Nile River. It had waters around it as smaller rivers ran in the area, and the banks would often overflow, giving the appearance of a sea. It was very hard to invade that city. On one side, they had the ocean as a border, and on the other side, a giant wall. And still, with all of that protection, natural barriers, they were overthrown. Because when God sets to judge a nation, nothing's going to stop him. Nothing will fortify the wicked. Nothing will save the wicked on the day of judgment. He's mocking. do Do you see how strong, how well fortified that city was? They were better than you, and I defeated them. Do you really think you stand a chance? Verse 9. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. And it was infinite. 
Put and Lubim were thy helpers. He's talking about Thebes. She had mighty warriors in Egypt. Egypt was a mighty army. She had alliances with Ethiopia, Put and Lubim. In fact, he calls it infinite. Her strength was infinite by by worldly standards, there was nothing that she, you could do to stand against this nation. Not only her own mighty Egyptian warriors, but these other nations that were confederate with her. They were called up to join her in battle. A rich, comfortable, and well-protected city. And yet when God's judgment came, there was no standing against him. Again, America needs to stop taking so much pride in our strength and in our military. We need to repent of our sins because when God sets to judge a nation, I don't care what you have in your arsenal, you will not stand against God. I don't care who you are or how privileged you think you are. There's no standing against God. Verse 10. Yet was she carried away. So, look at this city, situated among the rivers. The city sat on either side of the Nile River. And then she had multiple other rivers that ran around her that overflowed and formed a, a tiny ocean. Hard to cross, marshland. On one side, she had the ocean to the good barrier. On the other side, the landlocked areas, a mighty wall. A wall I was reading about in an archaeology book greater than the wall of Nineveh, stronger than the wall of Nineveh. She had all the armies of Egypt at her disposal. She had armies in three other nations that could be called up in a, in a moment's time to come and aid her. And God said, yet she was carried away. Are you better than her? I don't think so. Yet she was carried away. Where was I at? I lost my place. Verse 10. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Talk about being humbled. From mighty warriors to captive slaves. Her young children also were dashed in pieces. That was common in ancient warfare to dash children against stones until they died. And this wasn't even done in private. It says, at the top of all the streets. They go up to the highest points of the city on the streets so everyone could see what they were doing. To punish, to dishearten their enemies. They'd kill the children out publicly for them to look at. And they cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. This is the judgment of God, church. This is the judgment of God. Go to Isaiah 13. I'm going to show you a couple examples real quick of this dashing of the children against the stones. Isaiah 13, 16. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. 
Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. The context here is the coming judgment against Babylon. The Medes would come and do these things to Babylon. The Medes are the main invading force in Nineveh, too, by the way. Confederate with other nations. Go to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. page to turn here. Verse 12. The Bible says, Haziel said, Why weepeth thou? Or well, why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire, and their young men will thou slay with the sword, will dash their children and rip up their women with child. By the way, the next time somebody says to you, a baby in the womb is not a child, read them that verse. Women with child. I was watching a debate on Facebook today between a pro-abortion person and an abolitionist. And the pro-abortion person said, there's no, there's, no, there's no child in the womb. I guess trying to make the statement that it's only a child when it comes out of the womb. Well, God has something different to say. Now, the response is, I don't care what God says. You will. Judgment's coming. Nineveh is a precursor to what people are going to face one day. It says, with child in that verse. Keep a note of that. Go back to our text. He was on to say, they will cast lots for her honorable men. Think about that. Casting lots was really seen as a dishonorable thing. Like how we look at gambling today, right? You look as a, well, it's not, not in wide circles today, I guess, but some segments of our society would still frown upon gambling. But their honorable men will just be up for the taking. Whoever gets the highest straw gets them to choose who he wants. Her great men will be bound with chains. The mighty Assyrians bound with chains. Can you imagine that? God is not only judging them and defeating them, he's humiliating them. He's making an open show of them. See, why is God doing that? Because God is glorious and holy and just and righteous. I told you. People who have a problem with God's judgment have a low view of the holiness of God. He has every right to mock his enemies. He has every right to humiliate his enemies. His righteousness exceeds by far any moral standard that you and I could ever comprehend. We cannot fully grasp the holiness of God. So when you look at God's judgment, you say, oh, that's so severe. No, it's just right or he wouldn't do it. It's just right. They have sinned against a holy God. The Assyrians came and they plundered God's people. 10 of 12 tribes never returned. 10 of 12 tribes plundered. God has every right in defending his people to destroy these wicked Assyrians. 
and to humiliate them, to show that their power is nothing compared to his. But they won't repent, will they? That's the difference to them and Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. God humiliated him. You think people, we don't get the full story in the Bible account, I understand that. You think people didn't know their king was gone? You think they didn't know that he's out eating grass like an ox? Like you can't keep that hidden from people. People had to know that was going on. God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar. The man who walked out and said, look at this great Babylon that I have built. <laughs> Glory be to me. Let me build a giant statue and kill whoever won't bow down to it. So God humbled him. Now he repented and God honored him. God restored him to his place. Somebody once asked me, he goes, well, if he went out like a crazy person eating grass, why would anyone respect him as king ever again? I said, God can make people do what God wants to make people do. You realize that when the Egyptian or the Israelites left Egypt, the Egyptians voluntarily gave them their stuff. Just gave it to them. Like, Here you go. Here's jewelry. Here's money. Here's clothes. The best of my clothes. You can have it. And then like that, God changed their mind. They're like, what have we done? We just gave them all of our stuff. Let's go get them. The lesson there, I guess, I have to get a lesson because it's not in my notes. I have to think of a lesson now. Nothing's impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. God can make people do whatever God wants to make people do. You understand that? He can put it on someone's heart to meet a need that you have or that I have or the church has. He can put it on someone's heart to intervene in something. He could put it on someone's heart to dismiss a case. You know what I'm saying? You saying? God can make anybody do anything God wants them to do at any time. God can save the most wicked sinner. God can humble America. One thing I hate about street preachers, I hope they're not watching this, they're all so endlessly negative. They're out preaching but they don't really believe that God's going to do anything. I have street preachers tell me all the time, Pastor, I get what you're saying about praying for America, but America is down the tubes and, and she's too far gone and God, can't do, God can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants to do. Don't worry about what you think God should be doing. Do what you're supposed to be doing. What is that? Preaching the gospel? Praying for revival, living righteously, and let God take care of the rest. I had a street preacher friend tell me one time, Pastor, I can't pray for revival because I don't believe it's going to happen. I said, the problem is not... I said, your problem is right here, brother. You don't believe it's going to happen. I said, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't care what you believe. And God hasn't promised to bring revival to America. I'm just saying he hasn't promised that either. But he could. God can do anything he wants to do at any time, to anybody, to any nation. God, for this time, 
has driven our nation into absolute madness, hasn't he? I mean, things are being done and said and promoted today that would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago by the secular world. And today's promoted. And you're punished if you don't go along with it. He's driven us to absolute madness. He can revive us the same way. He has sent us out to, get, to eat ox or eat grass like an ox. He can call us back in if he wants to. God can do anything. Let's stop pretending that there are things that cannot be done. If you want evidence of that, go walk out here in the parking lot, take a, take a left, and look at the gate. I had no money for a gate. God did. He can do anything. We've got a prayer room right down the hall here. And that's the room where anything gets done that God can do. If you can think it and pray for it, he can do it. Start praying for it. Do we pray for people to be saved? I, I, I don't, I, I, before you say yes, of course I do. I don't mean... Do we get down every day and say, Lord, please save this person, save this person, save this person, save them. I mean, do we weep over these names? Do we shed any tears? Do we plead with God? Do we, do we plead the promises of God back to him to save our loved ones? Do we wrestle with him in prayer? Jacob wrestled with God. That's where the blessing came. Have you ever wrestled with God? If you haven't, start doing it. Sometimes you got to wrestle with God to get the blessing. Jesus often stayed up all night praying. All night. Some of you guys are thinking, I don't, I don't want to stay up for an hour. All night. He prayed to the Father. I'm, all, I'm totally off track. What verse am I on now? Let's just pick up verse 11. Is that where I left off at? So I can't get off my notes. I have trouble getting back on track. Verse 11. Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. So he's building upon himself here, starting with verse number eight. Are you better than this false god? Are you better than this city who was well defended, well situated, had great armies, had other armies that came to her rescue? She was carried away. She was humiliated, taken captive. People, uh, people uh, uh, drew straws for the honorable people there. Their children dashed to pieces. And then he says, thou also shalt be drunken. All that they received, Nineveh, is coming to you too. The reference to drunkenness here is not necessarily a reference to literal drunkenness. Although, when they were celebrating, right? So when Nineveh fell... Nineveh repelled three separate attacks on her city. After the third attack, she threw a party. And said, I'm invincible. <laughs> so literal drunkenness can play a part here. Because I'm pretty sure they got literally drunk at the party. Just like the Babylonians did when the Medes attacked them, right? It was in their drunkenness that they were overcome. So I think, I think it's a part of that. But the drunkenness here, in context, I think, is best described as being drunk with the wine of God's wrath. Just as Thebes was overthrown, 
Just as her honorable men were, were, were cast lots for and her, 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 her captains were put into captivity and the children were killed and the city was destroyed, you too will be, I don't want to misquote it here, you too will be drunken with the same wrath they received. What he's talking about there. I think that's the context of it. We see this picture given several times in Scripture. Go to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. That's in the back of the Bible, Amy, in case you need help. New Testament, New Testament. All right. Revelation 14, 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There the wrath of God is pictured as a wine. Now, for those who are unsaved, that should be terrifying. So back in the Bible times, they would mix their wine with water to make it less intoxicating. So you drink more of it. Because you know this about Jews, they love their wine. Still do. They'd water down their wine. And this judgment here, he says they're going to drink it unmixed. Pure wine. No watering down. Listen, the wine that Nineveh is about to drink, the wine that Thebes has drank, the wine that Babylon is going to drink, that's all watered down. But at the final judgment... Mankind, sinful mankind, will drink of the full strength of the wrath of God against sin. You and I, church, have never seen the full strength of the wrath of God against sin. You think these little small pictures of judgment in the Bible are terrifying? You think they're too mean for God to do that? Wait till you see the full, unmixed wrath of God against sinners. It's going to be a sight to behold. Yeah, I think he said that right. Powerful. God hates sin. And on the day of the final judgment, we're going to see just how much God hates sin. As people are thrown, literally hurled, into a lake of fire forever and ever. Where they'll be tormented day and night. They'll have no rest. No rest day or night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus will behold their suffering and he won't shed a tear. His justice will be satisfied. Say, ooh, I don't like that God. That you're on the wrong side of his wrath. He is who he is. And he is righteous. And he is holy. And he's just. None of us, none of us will look at those being cast into hell one day and say, oh, that's not fair. We'll say that was just, that was just, that was just. Go to Jeremiah 25, 15. Jeremiah 25, 15. A few more references to drunkenness real quick before we move on. Twenty-five fifteen. The Bible says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury in my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved, 
and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. Wine is often used as a picture of judgment. And by the way, let me make a correction. I said we have never seen the full strength of the wrath of God against sin. And I'm wrong. We saw it at Calvary, didn't we? Jesus didn't drink a watered-down cup of God's wrath. He took it full measure, full force. You want to see how much God hates sin? Look what happened to the Son of God on the cross. Totally undeserved. That's the wrath of God against sin. Go back to Nahum chapter 3. So they will be drunken with the judgment of God. He says they will be hid. This means shrouded in darkness. It's a reference to their reduced influence in the world. Assyria ran the world. I mean, they conquered whom they wanted to conquer, and they, they spread themselves around the known world. No more would that happen. No longer would they be a powerhouse in the world. By the way, I fear that day is coming for America, America too. They will seek strength, meaning they will seek other nations to come to their defense. What a pitiful place to be. The most powerful nation in the known world, begging for help from other nations. That's part of their humiliation. They once drove fear into the heart of nations. Now they will beg for someone to help protect them. It's kind of like we see in Revelation, isn't it? We see all the strong men of the earth. What are they doing? They're crying for the rocks and hills to hide them from the wrath of the one who sits upon the throne. The brave men, the strong, the mighty, the warriors, they're crying out, begging, hide us. <laughs> hide us from his wrath. Verse 12. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. All their strongholds, meaning their walls, their fortresses, are as ready to, ready to fall as ripe figs from a fig tree. Using a fig tree as a picture of judgment is common in Scripture. Again, let's go to Matthew 21. I'm going to show you a couple of Scriptures here. They're also on the back of the prayer list. You can make a note of them. Matthew 21. Verses 18 and 19. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. There's a parallel passage. Go to Mark 11. It gives us a little bit more information. Mark 11. Through 14. Mark 11, 12 through 14. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. His disciples heard it. Uh, unripe fruit. You say, why is Jesus cursing a fig tree when it's not the time for figs? And there's an answer to that. Uh, 
Unripe figs appeared on fig trees around the time of Passover. This is the time that Jesus is doing this. They were good enough to eat, but not fully ripe. Full ripening came later. So what it's saying is the fruit should have, the tree should have had fruit on it, not just leaves. It was the time for it to be bearing unripe fruit, and it was not. We know throughout Scripture that the fig tree is also, also often used as a picture of Israel. What do we have in this passage? Same, the same passage, we have Jesus cleansing the temple the second time. Israel should have borne fruit. She should have had, she had leaves, but no fruit. She had the appearance of godliness, but no fruit. And judgment was going to come as a result of that. One more passage, turn, I think, yeah, there it is. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 12 through 13. Revelation 6, 12 through 13. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island removed out of their places. This is judgment language. Judgment language. Using the fig tree as a, as a symbol of judgment. And by the way, the unripe fruit is what Israel was supposed to have. Do you, you catch that? They had leaves, but they should have had the unripe fruit that appeared at Passover time. They did not have that unripe fruit. Go back to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3. That might be our last time turning. We'll see. See how I feel about it. I might make something up later on. I don't know. The reference to their people being women is again an insult. I apologize, ladies. We need to remember this, the culture they were living in. Okay? Just now, I'm 41 years old. Just when I was like seven, it was okay to say your mama wears combat boots. Right? That was the thing. I don't know why. I don't know why. What was wrong with combat boots? Anyways. My, my mom wore flats most of the time. I don't know. But people used to tell me that. I'd be like, okay. What does that even mean? I understand the culture this is written to. Men did the battles. Women were seen as weaker, too emotional. He's not picking on women. Uh, in fact, women are given a great amount of respect in the Bible. But again, it's written to a certain culture. Calling them women would be a great insult. And that's what he's doing there. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. Your men are like women, he's saying. They're weak. They're scared. They're not strong. Again, that's not my view of women. That's just the Bible. Don't kill the messenger, church. It means they're cowards. Their army will be overthrown as if the entire army were women. That's what he's saying. We see these pictures used other times in the scriptures. You can mark down Isaiah 19.16. We won't go there, but 19.16, Isaiah has the same comment. He says their gates will be open. The fire will devour. Did I read that? I didn't even read the verse. I'm sorry. 
Verse 13, Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Sorry about that. I got all carried away. He says their gates would be open. The fire would devour their bars, meaning they would be easily defeated. The reference to their gate being open, I take to be literal. I couldn't find any of the commentators who agreed with me, but fully on them, right? Uh, they took it as symbolic, that you'll be easy to defeat. Uh, I take it as literal. Uh, as I read history and read about the, the fall of Nineveh, what history we have on it, uh, we know they were celebrating a victory in battle. We know they had a big party. We know they got drunk. I think he's talking literal. I think they, in their drunken stupor, left the gates of the city unlocked. I think that's how God defeated Nineveh, by their own stupidity. That's what happened. I can't prove that, but I'm going to, I'm going to present, present that to you as a literal thing the Bible's telling us. They literally left their gates open and allowed the army. It happened to Babylon. Remember Daniel chapter 5? The writing on the wall. Tonight you'll be killed. Your kingdom given to another. Historically, we know the Medes dug under the wall of Babylon into the city and overthrew the city because they were all drunk. How did they dig under the walls? The guards on the wall were drunk and passed out. Their own stupidity led to their downfall. They thought they were so smart, so strong, so mighty. It was their own stupidity. I think what he's saying here is your gates are going to be left wide open. You repelled that army three times, good for you. They're not coming over the walls. They're coming through the gates. And you're going to let them into the place, into the city. Verse 14. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. He's back to mocking them again. He's back to mocking. Remember, he's to, he kind of mocked them the first half of the chapter. Then he got into populist no and Thebes. Are you, are you better than them? They were better than you. They were stronger than you. They had more army than you have. Yet they were carried away. You'll be carried away too. And this is going to happen to you. And this is going to happen to you. And by the way, your army is just a bunch of women. Not going to stop me. Nope. Oh, by the way, your gates are going to be open. They're going to walk through. They're going to walk through and they're going to conquer. He's back to mocking the strength of the Assyrians. Draw water, he says. Drinking water is very important to a siege. The city of Nineveh was situated along the river, but there was the danger of the enemy diverting the water supply. You know how precious water is today. Think about water in those days. Your only water source was the river that ran along your city. If they diverted that water, what did you have? Nothing. So they did the siege of Jerusalem in, in uh, 70 AD when the Romans surrounded for three and a half years, surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They cut off their water supply, cut off their food supply. So he says, get all the water you need. Fortify your strongholds. Again, fix the wall. Fix your fortresses. Get down to the, the mortar. Make bricks. Use the brick kill. Make strong bricks. Make it strong. Make it strong. You know, do your best. Go ahead. Verse 15. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locusts. There in your strong fortresses and rebuilt walls will the fire and the sword devour you. The fire is a reference to the destruction of the city. 
The sword is against the people. It will eat them up like a canker worm. This is a reference to the young locusts. Their destruction will be as sudden and complete as a horde of locusts who come over vegetation, eat and then leave. That's what's going to happen to Nineveh. Make yourself many like the locusts. Or is he saying, it doesn't matter. Make yourself many, fortify yourself. I'm going to defeat you. Do your best, but I'm going to defeat you. Verse 16. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and fleeth away. They multiplied their merchants. One commentator says this, Nineveh was most favorably situated for carrying on commerce with, her, with other countries. The roads from Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Phoenicia that led into Media, Persia, and the interior of Asia converged in Nineveh and brought thither merchandise from all lands. And the Assyrians themselves exported their own produce and manufactures to the far west. The cankerworm spoileth, like locusts on vegetation, their goods and their merchandise would be taken from them, eaten up. It would be devoured by their enemies. They're going to be so destroyed, there'll be no more planting of vineyards, no more making of merchandise. Again, I repeat for like the ninth time, the city of Nineveh was so completely destroyed, it was not discovered until the 19th century. Over 2,000 years to rediscover the city. That's how thorough their destruction was. No more. He says, no more. No more money. No more strength. No more influence. No more good things. Your time has come. Verse 17. Thy crowned are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges of the cold day. But with the sudden rise that they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. The dignitaries and captains of the military are like locusts, he says. Now locusts, they don't do very good in the cold, do they? That's what he's saying. In the cold, they just kind of plant themselves in one place, and they, they wait it out. Then when the sun comes, they get strength, they, they leave. He's telling Nineveh, that's your army there. They're weak and ineffective. This is the cold. They're, they all look ready for battle, don't they? They're all just sitting there because it's too cold. But when the, when the sun of battle comes upon them, they're going to flee. They're going to run. And they did. They tried to flee the city. We saw the earlier prophecy that they have to force their people to stay and to fight. Because they would flee for their lives. Basically, God is saying, you look tough now, but they're all cowards. No run in the time of trouble. Verse 18 and 19. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy noble shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathered them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap their hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. Here God gives the epitaph of Nineveh. The shepherds slumber, and wording would indicate this is the slumber of death. The nobles dwell in the dust. Again, death. The mighty people of Assyria are scattered and no one gathers them. Their strength is gone and will not be regained. There would be no healing of Assyria. The wound is grievous, mortal even. Others will clap their hands over them or rejoice over them. Imagine that. They're so hated. They did so much damage in the world. When they're destroyed, people will rejoice 
that they're gone. No one's going to mourn them. No sadness at their funeral. Rejoicing only over them. Their wickedness touched so many people that their fall will be a time of great rejoicing. I'll give you some concluding thoughts on the book of Nahum. This is on the back of your prayer list as well. We see the kindness of God to his people in this book. The Lord is good, he said in chapter 1. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. God is good to his people. Nineveh, Assyria, has done great damage to God's people. And God is good to defend his people and to destroy those who seek their harm. We see the kindness of God to his people. We see the kindness of God in offering Nineveh repentance through Jonah in light of their great wickedness. You understand, in light of all the evil we've seen Assyria do, God offered and granted them repentance a hundred years before this. He had every right to destroy them then. But God is patient. He's good to his people. He's patient to his enemies. We need to remember that. God is merciful to sinners by offering them repentance and by common grace. Common grace is the, those good things in life they receive. People always say, did Jesus purchase anything on the cross for sinners that are non-elect? Yes, he did. He, he purchased grace for them. They wake up every day and enjoy the sunrise and the beautiful sunset. And they make money and go on vacations and have families and play at the beach and play at the park and climb to the mountains and ride on their boats and their yachts. They, they have such a good time. That's all the grace of God. They deserve judgment yesterday. And God allows them so many good things. He lets his rain fall on the just and on the unjust, doesn't he? He's kind to his enemies. If somebody tries to get you to buckle under, God is mean. Show them how kind God is. With the fact that while they stand there blaspheming him by calling him mean, he allows them to have that breath. And another, and another. The day is coming when that will be taken away. Hell is just the removing of all grace from sinners. There'll be no goodness of God in hell. You guys understand that, right? No, sinners today can still have a good life and be comfortable and happy and self-fulfilled. In hell, all of that is taken away. There is no comfort in hell. There is no fulfillment in hell. God literally removes all of his grace all of his kindness, and leaves them to be devoured for eternity by their own lust for sin. In this book, we see the anger of God against sin, don't we? God is holy, pure, and just. God hates sin. Oh, I wish the Christians could learn this. God hates sin. We see in this book the completeness of the destruction of Assyria, don't we? I mean, pounded to the ground, not to be dug up for 2,000 plus years. So will it be with the sinner on the day of judgment. So complete, so thorough their judgment. All of God's enemies we destroyed, and that without remedy. For us, we need to rejoice in God's goodness and run to him for shelter. We will see the destruction of the wicked, but it will not touch us. 
And I end this book on that great verse, Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Church, if you're saved, you will never be on the Nineveh side of God's judgment. Run to Christ for shelter. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because there's no condemnation on Christ Jesus himself. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time in the Word. What a blessing. This book has been what a stark reminder, what a warning to us. It reminded me that you're kind and gracious to sinners. You love your people. You will always vindicate your people. You're a stronghold. You're a mighty fortress. You are a kingdom that will never be defeated, never come to an end. The wicked can fortify themselves. They can join hand to hand. They can be many in number and mighty in strength, and yet they will not stand in the day of judgment. Help us, Lord, to, to seek righteousness. That righteousness that's found in Christ alone. Not our own righteousness, Lord, but the righteousness imputed to us by Christ. Thank you for this great book. Thank you for your justice, for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for your holiness, for the beauty of your holiness, the beauty of your person, the splendor and majesty and glory that are yours forever and ever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.